Put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. All of us loved him. We were all intimidated. There was never... I, I remember talking with Mel Broyles, the principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera, for a long time about it. And, and uh, I said to him, what were your lessons like with Vacchiano? He said, oh, I spent a lot of time on the crying bench. All of us spent time on the crying bench. And, and, and then Mel said to me, I finally beat him in his own game. I said, yeah, what'd you do? He said, stop taking lessons. This is Manny Laureano, and you're listening to Trumpet Dynamics, Episode 5. I believe in America. America has made my fortune, and I raised my daughter in the American fashion. But I taught her to never dishonor the European classical tradition of music. I gave her a Bach Stradivarius trumpet. I paid for lessons with Bill Vacchiano himself. She was going to be a great orchestral trumpet player. She found a boyfriend, a saxophone player. They used to stay up late at night listening to records by Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Steed. I didn't protest. Then, two months ago, for her 16th birthday, her boyfriend and another boyfriend gave her a tenor saxophone and she played it. She plays it all the time. She says she doesn't want to play her trumpet anymore. I weep. Why do I weep? Beautiful girl. She was the light of my life. She used to play the solo from Pines of Rome so Beautifully. And now, she will never be beautiful again. Sorry. I went to the Bandorector, like a good American. He told me it is her choice, and there is nothing he can do. Nothing he can do. I stood in the band room like a fool. And those two pomposos, they played on their saxophones all the things you are and smiled at me. Then I said to my wife, for justice, we must go to Don Clarino. Why don't you go to the band director? Why don't you come to me first? What do you want of me? I'll do anything you ask, but do what I beg of you to do. And what is that? That I cannot do. I'll give you anything you ask. We've known each other for many years, but this is the first time you've come to me for help, for musical counsel. I can't remember the last time you invited me to your house to play duets. Even though I financed your lessons with Max Schlossberg, but let's be frank here, you never wanted my friendship, and you were afraid to be in my debt. I didn't want to get into trouble. I understand. You found paradise in the symphony, you had a good gig, made a good living. You thought your daughter would want to be a great trumpet player just, just like your father. And you didn't need a friend like me. Uh, 
But now you come to me and you say, Don Clarino, give me justice. But you don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. Instead, you come to my house on the day of my daughter's wedding and you ask me to mangle a boy's saxophone for money. I ask you for justice. That is not justice. Your daughter still plays an instrument. Let them suffer then, as I suffer. How much shall I pay you? Trombone, Sarah. What have I ever done to you that you treat me so disrespectfully? If you come to me in friendship, then no scum who corrupted your daughter's mind will be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then he would become my enemies. And then they would fear you. Be my friend, Don Clarino. Good. Someday, when that day may never come, I'll ask you to sub for me on the fourth trumpet part at the circus. But until that day comes, accept this justice as a gift on the day of my daughter's wedding. Grazie. Prego. The thing that sticks out in my mind about studying with Mr. Vacchiano is that, like Arnold Jacobs of the Chicago Symphony, he had this incredible ability to teach you the exact same lesson for four years and make you into the trumpet player that you were willing to put the work in to become. Hi, this is James Newcomb, and you are indeed listening to Episode 5 of Trumpet Dynamics. This was published in February of 2016, way back in the day. And this was one of the best-received, one of the most downloaded episodes of the first year of the podcast. 2016 was probably the busiest to date. To this day, it's one of my top highlights of my podcasting career. And at that time, I, I had just begun. I think I just realized I'm onto something really special. Just to do this and talk to people who held someone like William Vacchiano in such high esteem, it was just a real honor to, to be a part of it. I think it led to me wanting to take podcasting seriously and make it my career. It was one of the things that led to that. At any rate, you're going to hear Brian Shook, who is the author of Last Stop, Carnegie Hall. And it also features Manny Lariano, whose voice you've already heard, Ronald Rom, whose voice you heard at the very beginning, and then uh, Gerard Schwartz. Epic, epic undertaking to do this episode, but it was well worth it. I'm, I know you're going to just, you're going to absolutely love it. Uh, you're going to love it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. Now, if you like this episode, I have been hard at work getting all of the archives from the Trumpet Dynamics podcast together. But I was hard at work this past weekend, or maybe this past week, getting all of the archives together, and they are available on a mobile app that I use called Learnistic, and they're all there. I mean, I shouldn't say all of them, because there were a few in the early days that weren't really relevant. I, I was kind of trying out things and experimenting, uh, so I didn't republish all of them, but they are on uh, the Learnistic mobile app. And to get the app and to get access to all of the archives, there's some really good ones. There's Bernie Adelstein. There is Andy Tishner, Chris Coletti, Vince DiMartino, Darren Barrett. I mean, there's a lot of really good in, in information. So just go to trumpetdynamics.com and there you'll see a form to enter your email address. So that'll lead you through a little bit of an automation process to get access to the app and download it. You have to follow the directions. Uh, otherwise, you won't be able to get the Trumpet Dynamics section of the, of the, of the app. Go to TrumpetDynamics.com. It's going to redirect you to my website, JamesNewcombonTrumpet.com, and you'll be off to the races. All right, I have taken enough of your time. It's time to listen to this wonderful, epic episode, a tribute to the great William Vacchiano. Well, Brian, I want to begin our interview by getting your thoughts on this. And something that stuck in my mind after reading your book is that Bill Vacchiano 
was not a trumpet player who played music. He was a musician who played trumpet. I just want to get your thoughts on that. What was his overall philosophy regarding his role as a trumpet player? Yeah, I don't think he was the uh, typical meathead trumpet player, you know, that, that we get a, a lot of times associated with our instrument and our, our uh, people who play trumpet. You know, when he started as, uh, as a very young boy studying music, you know, he had to have, I believe it was a, a year of um, solfege training before he even chose an instrument. And it's something that's very lacking today um, in our, at least in the States, in our education. And so he started off with a very uh, vocal approach, that solfege, ear training approach, and then um, with piano as well, before he even got to the trumpet. So that was really instilled in him as a young student. And then even even more so when he was teaching uh, later on in his career, it wasn't uncommon for a student to walk in the door and for him to be tapping his, uh, he'd tell the student to turn turn to whatever page in the Soxa book and he'd start tapping a tempo and he'd start singing, solfeging the etude they were going to play in the correct key before they even you know had their mouthpiece in the trumpet. So a very much of a, a vocal approach in his playing. And you can really hear that in his playing in the orchestra. Very, very individualistic style of playing. Very different than what we have today. Uh, everything being sounding much more the same. You know, back back in his era and his time, the, the players had a lot more uh, freedom in their, in their playing. And so, you know, you're going to hear more vibrato and that kind of a thing. His style of playing, um, but he encouraged his students to have their own style. You look at all the different students that he had you know, Gerard Schwartz, Manny Loriano, um, Miles Davis for a very short time, and uh, Wynton Marsalis, you know, all of these players, none of them sound alike. They all are unique. And that's one thing about his teaching that he really brought out in his students is to have them uh, sound very unique. And the trumpet was just the vehicle that they were using to express themselves musically. There was a couple of stories in your book that I found funny. The first is the story of how he actually chose the trumpet. It, it was sort of on accident. And the second was how he became an orchestral player, like he almost was a Broadway player. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the the whole thing about trumpet, uh, him choosing a trumpet, actually started on cornet. He was a uh, first-generation Italian-American, and so his, his uh, parents spoke Italian at home, and of course he also spoke English. So uh, when it came time for him to choose an instrument after that year of uh, soulfish training his dad I, I think the i think the way the story goes if i remember correctly is that uh, his dad pinned uh, um, some money to his coat and said you know when you get to school um tell the band director you want to play clarinet and uh well you know being a, a young kid who wasn't really paying attention when he got to school he uh, had forgotten exactly what his dad said, and, and the Italian word for clarinet and cornet were, were very similar. When the band director was going through the different instruments saying, well, which one did your dad tell you to play? The, the band director got to cornet before he got to clarinet, and it sounded similar enough that he said, that's the one. <laughs> and so he brought that home, and, and his dad was a little upset that, uh, that he, had, he had brought home the wrong instrument. So yeah, it, was, it was kind of a little bit of an accident the way he got started there. <laughs> It's funny how uh, that that small little detail was uh, so <laughs> instrumental. To yeah, yeah. Who knows? He could have been a world famous clarinetist, you know. But, but but his mother said something like, "It doesn't matter. He's not going to be any good anyway." Right. right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Mom, it doesn't matter. It's not going to amount to anything. You know. It's it's just uh, you know just something we do here to study music. So, um, but yeah, I guess he uh, proved him wrong. So took mm. took uh, quite a liking to it right off the bat. I think I think he would he would sit in his as a little boy he just sat and practiced scales in the kitchen you know all day long, and I think his mom said when are you going to stop playing scales and play some music? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing um, was um, how he got into more of an orchestral uh, career, classical career than big band uh, type of career, uh, um, Broadway type thing. I think there were there were a couple of different managers that were uh, interested in him, and one of them was I forget the gentleman's name off the top of my head here, but he was looking for a trumpet player and had asked his Vacchiano's um, teacher who would be a good player to you know play some of these these shows and uh, big band dates. Uh, I forget who it was that gave this contractor the the wrong directions, and in the meantime went over and contracted Vacchiano to play 
you know, with, I was it a community band? I can't remember exactly. So there was this kind of a, a little bit of a, a race to see who could get to Tavakiana first, and the classical guy got there first. So <laughs> he had another, another quick uh, twist of events there. This is Gerard Schwartz. I studied with Bill Vacchiano from the time I was in the middle of my freshman year, maybe it was a sophomore year in high school, through my years at Juilliard. And there were quite a few years at Juilliard because I was playing a lot around the world, actually, uh, and uh, was not able to actually spend a whole year at school except my first year. But I guess the, the, the most fun memory for me was my first lesson. I was living in a town called Weehawken, New Jersey, just on the other side of the Lincoln Tunnel. But Vacchiano was my hero. And I, as a high schooler, I used to go to the New York Philharmonic concerts. And, of course, I bought all the Bernstein recordings, as any real fan would do. And, of course, I was I thought of myself as a little bit of a hot shot. I was, as a freshman the, in high school, the first trumpet in the all-city high school orchestra. I had quite a good success already as a kid. It must have been my sophomore year when I went to Vacchiano. And so I went, I remember I brought some Aaron Harris studies and other very difficult repertoire to play for him and excerpts and everything you can imagine. Well, getting there wasn't so simple because I took the bus uh, from New Jersey to the Port Authority bus terminal. Then I took the train to someplace in Queens, I think Queens Boulevard. Then I took the Q44A bus and then up the boulevard and then I well it took me about an hour and a half to get to him and it was a Sunday morning maybe it was even longer because the trains and buses didn't run very often and then I got to his to his house and I you know waited outside until the appointed moment when I was supposed to have my lesson hoping and I hear him play a few notes and anyway so I went in and I, I went and I played all these pieces and I, I I felt pretty good about the way I played so my lesson comes to an end and he says to me well, except for your, your tone and your rhythm and your articulation, not bad. And that was my first lesson. And so from then on, it was transposition, changing mouthpieces, sight reading, and until he really got me to play and sound the way he wanted and the way I wanted. Well, of course, Vacchiano was uh, a great teacher of orchestral trumpet players because that was his forte. But I was looking at the biography of, or the uh, some of the the list of some of his students, and I saw, of course, Wynton Marsalis, Miles Davis, uh, probably a, a lot of other jazz players. What was his approach with teaching uh, Miles Davis, who obviously didn't want to be an orchestral player? How would he try to influence him? Well, it didn't work <laughs> because you know Miles was was at Juilliard to get just to get to New York to to play with all the big jazz cats in New York. So I think Miles may have only been enrolled for a semester or a year. I don't think he was there for very long. And of course, so while he was there, he had to study with the trumpet teacher, and so he was with Vacchiano. So I, the two of them were were about as opposite as you could get. And one of the stories goes that, uh, you know, Miles came into his lesson, and of course, everybody had to do transposition in their lessons. And so Vacchiano did his usual quizzing. He said, you know, the, the music is written in D, you're playing an E-flat trumpet, you know, you need to transpose to this other key, you know, to F or something. And uh, so, you know, where does that where does that put your trumpet? What key are you playing in now? And Miles just said, the trumpet goes right back in the case. <laughs> you know, he just he he did not want to do any you know transposing that kind of thing. So I don't think that the two of them you know necessarily got along. Not that there wasn't any mutual respect for each other, um, but Miles Miles was there for a completely different purpose than what than what Vacchiano was typically teaching most of his students. So that was kind of a little bit of a, um, the two of them, you know, that's not the greatest example. A, a better example would be Wynton Marsalis and other, another uh, gentleman like uh, Joe Wilder, both very accomplished jazz players who also did a decent amount of, you know, type of classical type playing too and uh, studio playing. With Wynton, early on, he, of course, was doing jazz and classical concurrently and having tremendous success in both. And then later on, he, he switched over mainly to jazz. But I, I know that through, you know, Winton's studying with him, you know, he, he got, he got all the excerpts and all the etudes and transposition and everything. And a real strong 
foundation in the Arbenz book. That Arbenz and, and St. Jacome were the two, two books that Bacchiano used the most in his teaching of fundamentals. And so those guys would go through those. I mean, all you have to do is just watch somebody like Wynton Marsalis play, and there's you know video clips all over, all over the internet of him playing Clark studies and things like that. You know, you just don't get to be that good in any idiom without understanding the fundamentals. So Vakiana really tried to instill those fundamentals in in his students. I think uh, it was Gerard Schwartz. I think it was, and I, when I was talking with him. He had been studying with Vakiano since he was in uh, high school. So they knew each other for quite a while, and then and then Schwartz entered Juilliard, and um, it came time to be one of his for one of his recitals. And Vacchiano typically wouldn't go to his students' recitals, I think, because he, partially because he was so busy. But Schwartz had sort of backed him into a corner and really made sure that Vacchiano was going to be at at the recital. Why don't we have Gerard Schwartz himself tell us this story? When I got to Juilliard. Of course, as as I pointed out, we both all we all sight read. That's what we did. We sight read. We never he never really heard us play. So at the beginning of my, I think it was my freshman year at Juilliard, I wanted to give a recital. So I went to him. I said, Mr. Macchiano, I want to give a recital. He said, Why would you want to do that? Of course, you know the normal thing. And then I'd say, But I want you to come. And he said, Sure. Uh, and I, I looked at the New York Philharmonic schedule, and I see you can do it on Friday night, whatever it was, February 21st, let's say. And he said, okay, that's fine. Uh, Leonard Slatkin was the conductor of a little orchestra that we had at Juilliard that he got together for me, and I played a big recital, hard program. And uh, and I went to Vacchiano a couple of weeks before, and I said, Mr. Vacchiano, um, to remind you that the concert is in two weeks on the Friday night. He said, no, no, I never go to concerts. I, I don't go to concerts. I just don't like concerts. I don't go to concerts. And I said, I said, but Mr. Vacchiano, you promised. I asked him in September, and we came up with this date, and you promised you would come. And he said, I did. And I said, yes. He said, well, okay, I'll come. So he came to the concert. And when it was over, he came backstage and he said only one thing to me. He said, Jerry, I had no idea you could play like that. You know, so Vacchiano wasn't really interested in hearing what a student could do necessarily, you know, in a, in a polished sense. He was trying to get them to improve from week to week. And so he didn't spend like you know an entire semester working on on a, a concerto or something uh, or or one excerpt. He just tried to get through as much literature as possible to expose the student to that literature and to make sure their fundamentals were developing appropriately. And then the student can you know find the repertoire. They can they can you know find the uh, the idiom that suits. So, you know, it, it was a real interesting, real interesting approach to his students and how he taught them and encouraged them to find their own voice, uh, but also really sticking to the fundamentals. And you just can't go wrong with that jazz, classical lead or whatever. He focused on just a handful of things, but they were all incredibly important. You worked on transposition with him because he wanted you to have a brain. He thought that a trumpet player with a brain was much preferable to one without one. You worked on phrasing. You learned how to phrase. Sometimes we use bowings to mark the parts so that we would get out of the odious habit of slamming into the last note of a phrase. He would always have us, na-dee-da-dee-dum. Instead of what so many of us would do at first, da 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 da, you know, a lot of us had come out of high school and playing in band, where you you got to play big all the time, and a lot of important musical rules were never really set because in those days the band directors just wanted to develop good, strong, powerful trumpet players and. Music be damned <laughs> if, if it meant that they were going to be able to build somebody who, who had some chops. So he had to civilize us a little bit. It seemed like his style of teaching was more designed to get the student to become their own teacher. Absolutely. And of course, that's the best kind of teacher. I, I, one of the things that he said was the, the mark of, of a good teacher is one who doesn't damage the student. <laughs> you know, 
you kind of got to get out of the way and let the student find their way. Of course, you need to guide them. And of course, a lot of the students that he was that he was getting at Juilliard and Manhattan and Manus, those types of students were already students who were pretty well developed. Not many of them had to go through an embouchure change or any of those types of really rudimentary things. So he was already getting students who were probably all state players and that kind of a thing who had already um, enjoyed a, a certain amount of success. So he just tried to kind of steer him a little bit. Without question, I can say that Mr. Vacchiano rebuilt me as a as a musician. Because when I came in, I was this Puerto Rican kid who listened to a lot of Latin music and Tijuana Brass and Blood, Sweat and Tears and Chase and all this stuff. You know, and I had a good lip. I had endurance. I had a good upper register and all that stuff. But I was really about as raw as you can get. The next four years with Mr. Vacchiano was Rocky Balboa studying under Apollo Creed, you know, just kind of taking uh, what this, this raw strength, adding some finesse to it. What would be the process for getting, obviously getting into Juilliard would get you an audience with Vacchiano, but it, like, let's say you're 25 years old and you want to take the trumpet seriously, but you don't have the money for Juilliard, but you want to study with Vacchiano. What would be the process or would he like take students in, in a situation like that? Yeah, he taught, uh, you know, uh, you know, he taught over 2000 students privately. So um, he taught at Juilliard, Manus, Manhattan, uh, several other places like the Hart School. And, but, you know, he taught there for um, short durations or in the summers and that kind of a thing. So, you know, he taught students all over. But, but the type of student you're talking about, somebody who may be out of school or not able to uh, enroll in, in a formal program, um, they would study with him at his house. Mm-hmm. And so there were lots of players um, who came down from the West Point band? That was probably one of his biggest pipelines. You know, you got people like uh, Lee Soper and um, Tom Stevens. You know, they came down from uh, from there. Malcolm McNabb, I think, and they would get lessons with him. Maybe some of them did stay with him in Juilliard. Maybe some of them did not. And they would they would come get lessons. And there was quite a there was quite a wait list. Mm to get in to see him. Of course, now we have all kinds of apps and computer programs to organize all that stuff uh, <laughs> for us. But, but he, kept, he kept a really, really good um, system and record of, of his students and those who were, who were waiting to get in with him. And a lot of it, too, you know, had to do with, did you know somebody who was a student of his? Mm. And that, of course, would always help just with anything, you know, that type of networking and, and uh, uh, connections uh, with people. Um, but, but I don't, I mean, he really would teach anybody. I don't think he turned people away because they were not good enough or that kind of a thing. I never heard anybody say that he said, well, you know, come back and see me when you're better. He, he might have said, "Don't come back until you can <laughs> until you can play what I've asked you to play." Mm-hmm. Meaning that the student isn't apl- isn't applying themselves. That's a little bit different. But he would take a student with where they were and try to build upon that. Um, so he did quite a bit of teaching out of his home. It wasn't uncommon for him to be teaching, you know, until eleven o'clock at night or Sunday morning at eight a.m. in a bathrobe. This is Ronald Rom, the the major connector for all of us that spent time in Vacchiano's studio was that he was about getting it done. How to do it under difficult circumstances, under less than ideal situations. You know, he was always keeping us on our toes. So virtually everything that we did in his studio was um, was an on-your-toes learning to commit to the process uh, situation. My very first lesson with Bill Vacchiano was in the summertime. I was 18 years old. So I knocked on the door and he came to the door. He was a very big guy. He was over six foot four, maybe 250 pounds when I first met him. He's a big guy and he had a huge face. He had this very pleasant demeanor in spite of the fact that he was an intimidating figure. So he invited me in and he took me immediately down the stairs and this was his house in Queens and and uh, and he took me downstairs to the basement. Okay. And I unpacked 
my stuff and I pulled out a trumpet and he had me sit in a chair and, and it was hot. It was a hot day. It was summertime. It was a hot day in New York. It was a hot day in Queens. And I'm sweating and, and I'm nervous. And, and Vacchiano has this fan, this very noisy, rattly old fan going. <laughs> you can imagine. And you know what the fan does to the trumpets on it. So I'm, I'm playing through this thing. He has me re- Everything was read. There was nothing prepared for Bill. Everything was expected to be on the fly, prepared as quickly as possible. And the sooner you learn how to do that, the sooner you are actually going to f- flourish. He said, uh, do you want the fan closer? <laughs> no, 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 I don't need the fan closer. Aren't you too hot? So, no, I don't need the fan closer. That's all right. And later on, as I reflected on that, I realized that that was one of the, or may have been, and I'm not sure, I never asked him about it later, but it may have been one of the preliminary tests to see how we functioned with all of these variables. He was a man of fantastic commitment and learning how to not be affected by those variables was his way of teaching us leadership i may have been able to be you know survive for the 29 years in canadian brass and and 25 of those hard years on the road without but it certainly helped me to have spent the time not worrying about what key i was going to play if you show up and your trumpet got dinged up, you grab another one out of the case and play it. And that happened a few times. And it was just the idea of him having drilled into us, not being intimidated by the various variables. And there were always many. I enjoyed all of the accolades that you collected regarding Vacchiano from all these uh, wonderful players throughout the world. But, you know, trumpet players are trumpet players, and they're, they're human, and humans are driven by ego. So I'll, I'm curious to know if Vacchiano ever butted heads with uh, other musicians, particularly some of the uh, other great orchestral trumpet players like Bud Herseth, Roger Voisin. What was his relationship with those types of people? You know, that's, that's a really great question, and, and all of my research... Uh, and and my conversations with Mr. Vacchiano, um, I never um, sensed any type of of bitterness um, or jealousy toward those other pe- toward those um, other musicians that uh, towards his peers and other orchestras. Uh, that's one thing about Vacchiano I can say is that it was really surprising to me before I before I started my my research. Is you expect someone of that type of stature to have a certain type of an ego um but uh he was so nice in in all of his comments about everyone mm-hmm. and not just in a sort of a political correctness type of way um he was very uh, genuine in his praise of other people and his students and and things like that so i never really felt that there was any type of competition i know that in later years you know, people try to talk about the New York school and the Chicago school and all this type of thing. Um, but I never even got into that with any of his, uh, as any of my interviews with him or his students. I never felt that there was any type of a barrier there. I only knew that there was respect for those other musicians. His personal opinions about them and their playing, I don't know. And I'm not sure if anybody really knew except for maybe a few people that were very, very close to him. But that never – I was so surprised that never really came up in any of of my uh, of my interviews. And so that just he, – he was a real true gentleman. So it's so easy to – to feel threatened by other people, by other players, other teachers. And uh, if he did feel that way, that, that was unknown to me. And he never really wanted to get involved in, in those types of, uh, that, that type of attitude. You know, I, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was, some, it was another trauma player in the Philharmonic. You know, they would be sitting back in rehearsal and there'd be people bickering and complaining with one another. And somebody would say, you know, Bill, what do you what do you think of that? And he goes, I, I'm not going to get involved. He goes, what's the point? There's not, you know, there, there's no sense in just getting people upset. I'm not, it's, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Now, there were times that he did stand up and he spoke and he made his opinion known. 
you know, for example, you know, he, one time he had a student play extra with the orchestra. I forget what piece it was, but it was, you know, a piece of called for nine trumpets or something. So they had to have in extras. And uh, Bernstein cut off the cut off the orchestra in rehearsal and said said, you know eighth trumpet you missed a note or you missed an entrance or whatever and vacchiano spoke up and said hey lenny you know let him off the hook you know it's okay um he'll get it next time bernstein that wasn't good enough for bernstein so he said let's start here and Hmm. and knowing that the eighth trumpet or whatever part it was played by himself vacchiano played that part along with the student just to kind of say hey you know bernstein leave us alone we'll take care of it you know, so he really looked after his own, took care of his of his team, took care of his boys. So he did stand up when he needed to, but but the common stuff that you know, just just people complaining and whining and that kind of stuff, he he didn't really have any time for that. Mm. Well, that's just that's just classic leadership right there, going to bat Absolutely. for your subordinates. Absolutely, yeah. What type of a leader was he? I mean, he's the principal of probably one of the greatest, if not the best, trumpet sections ever. So what was his leadership style, and how did he balance those egos of those great players? And, you know, to answer that question, we sort of have to, you know, trans- transport ourselves back in time, during a time at, at least which I was not living. But but this is, you know, you think back to the heyday of the Philharmonic, uh, the New York Philharmonic with, with Leonard Bernstein, so you're talking in the round of the 60s or so. And these guys were working so much, not just with the orchestra alone, but with um, all of the recording dates outside, not to mention all of their teaching. So these guys were going around town. I, I think Vacchiano had something like, I don't know, 20 trumpets spread throughout the city at various locations, you know, recording th- studios and concert halls. And he even had a guy who was in charge of just making sure he had the right trumpets at the right gigs. So that all he had to do was show up. You know, that's just how busy they were. And so Vacchiano didn't have time to really sit down and go, okay, how am I going to be a leader? Hmm. You know, today we have this whole leadership training and what do we need to do to be a good leader and you know, five steps to success in your company and this kind of thing. And, and those things are all good and well, but... In Vacchiano's time and what he was doing, he didn't have time to think about those things, or at least to my knowledge. Um, so given their uh, amount of performance and recording and teaching that they were doing, it was a real group team effort. Vacchiano was the point man uh, in the section, but it was a group effort. It was not uncommon for him to really rely on the other guys in the section he knew everyone's strengths and weaknesses, and they knew his. And so Vacchiano had lots of power, lots of uh, uh, good, good upper range. Of course, beautiful you know, solo voice. Uh, his low range was not one uh, part of his playing that he said he always was having to work on his low range. It was not, that was probably one of the weakest parts of his, of his playing. Um, he made sure that, that he had somebody in the section who could play really good low notes. And so when you get to those spots and, and the you know famous parts of the repertoire where there's low notes, a lot of times it's not him playing. He would ask somebody else in the section to play those notes for him. Something that's unheard of today. You know, you almost today you would never have you would never ask your second trumpet to play a note for you. You know, heaven forbid that's that's a that's a sign of weakness or something. Um, but back then it was all about getting the job done and making it sound making it sound good. And they were all on the same team. It, one, one of the classic examples, the, the best example of this, is um, in the Bernstein uh, Young People's Concert um, DVD. It's a DVD set now, but uh, I think it's a 10 or 12 DVD set. And uh, they recorded all of the Young People's Concerts the Philharmonic did uh, back in the 50s and 60s. And on one of those programs, they did uh, Petrushka which in the middle of Petrushka is a very, very famous trumpet solo. It's just trumpet and, and snare drum. And a uh, very, very tricky solo. Has to, you know requires lots of agility in your playing. And, of course, Vacchiano could play this. This wasn't beyond his ability or anything. For whatever reason, maybe he wasn't feeling well. Uh, maybe there was a lot of playing that day. We don't really know. But he divided that solo up so that his second trumpet player would play just a few notes so that Vacchiano could get a breath. 
<laughs> I think it, I think it might be a total of three notes. I can't remember. So that Vacchiano could play it, presumably, in just one take so they wouldn't have to go back through and, and edit it and all that kind of a thing, since it was probably mostly a live recording anyway. Mm-hmm. And so he asked that the second trumpet player was Nat Prager, who Vacchiano said, I would have been out of a job if it wouldn't have been for him. He saved his skin so many times. Mm-hmm. And so Nat Prager was just sort of one of those unsung heroes of the trumpet world. And uh, Vacchiano just said, hey, can you play these few notes? And boom, he just popped in. You can watch the video. It's on, you know, it's, I'm sure it's on YouTube or whatever. You just, you see the, you see the, the camera zoomed in on Vacchiano. You see Prager kind of fade into the screen and play a couple notes and he fades kind of back out. <laughs> and uh, if you listen to it, it is completely undiscernible by the human ear to tell that somebody else is playing those notes, the way that they matched together. I, I think it would be almost harder to do that. <laughs> it'd be almost easier to play it by yourself. But um, but for whatever reason, that's what he did. And, and maybe he just wanted to give, you know, um, his buddy Nat something to do on that on that concert you know you never really know um but it, but the leadership was one of of mutual respect uh, on the bernstein recording of uh Mahler's third symphony which is one of the most another again one of the most famous trumpet extended trumpet solos in all of the literature he gave that solo to the the third assistant who at the time was Johnny Ware one of his former students, and he gave him that extended solo, which is one of the most famous, now one of the most famous recordings of Mahler's Third Symphony. It's one of the definitive recordings, not just for that solo, but for the entire uh, symphony. And he passed that on to his third assistant player. You know, and that just, there's, it takes a certain amount of uh, humility um, to be able to do that. Vacchiano had total faith in, in, in all the people in his section, and he he was not a ball hog. He was after the music, the musical result. And when you listen to that post horn solo, you realize how beautifully John Ware played. I mean, he was smooth and, and liquid and, and just just totally gorgeous. I, I I studied that. I mean, that's how we learned that post horn solo was John Ware's recording. And yeah, Bill was that way. One time and one time only, I was invited to play. Uh, John Ware was ill, and I got a call from Jimmy Chambers to come and play the concert. The Bernstein was conducting, and it was a an all-Tchaikovsky concert. Bill had told him to call me, and so I got the call, and I, I had to arrange with the Radio City Music Hall uh, to, to, to sub out, which was something that I never did. It's against my philosophy to sub out. I mean, if you accept a job, if it's for a nickel or $5,000, whatever the first time the first call is, that's the commitment. Boom. And I called Bob Swan and I said to him, Bob, I, I don't do this. You know me well enough to know if I commit to something, I do it. He said, yes, it's true. And I said, well, I got a call from Jimmy Chambers to play for John Ware, who's sick tonight at the Philharmonic. He said, go. No problem. Go. So... I called Vacchiano and and, uh, and, I, and I said, Mr. Vacchiano, uh, he didn't ask me to call him Bill until significantly later. We were all part of a football team. He would call us by our last name, and he was Mr. Vacchiano. Okay, so, so he told me, he said, show up, uh, you know, we've got it. We, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through the part of, so, you know, Tchaikovsky's, I guess it was the first symphony. And and um, and Bernstein was the conductor, and uh, you know, and so I show up at the at the hall. I think the show was supposed to be eight o'clock show, and I show up there at uh, at uh, six forty-five, and uh, Vacchiano is is in the back room there, and he, and, you know, I, I ask the the guard to call him, and he calls Vacchiano. Vacchiano comes and gets me and brings me back. He, he's building a trumpet to play on the show. And he's been building this trumpet out of old other trumpets that he had. And he's got it working, okay? But he needs to me to play scales with him. So for the next 45 minutes, when I'm supposed to be learning this part, <laughs> because I have no rehearsal, <laughs> we're playing scales. Finally, finally at, at 7.30, so I guess it's about 7.35, close to 7.40, I say to, to Vakiano, I said, uh, Mr. Vacchiano, uh, I need to. I need you to talk me through the part. Tell me what you would like me to do, and we're, you know, and and uh, he said, Oh, oh, sure. He said, just a minute. So he went out and got the part, brought it back, and he said, 
He handed me the part. He said, yeah, this is okay. Yeah, rest here, rest here. This place here, play loud as hell. And that was my rehearsal. The whole point was that everything that he'd been teaching us to do was from a leadership position. And we were to be leaders like that and be prepared for no matter what it was. Boom. Whatever the key was, whatever the intention was, whatever we were asked to do, that's it. And it was all about the music. Obviously, it just required a, a, quite a bit of maturity on all of those guys to just have that selfless approach to being a, a section, not just individual players sitting next to each other, but they're a true section. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, it, it, it totally kind of changed my way of thinking mm. when it comes to uh, any, any type of gigs or whatever I play <laughs> on. You know, if there's somebody there that can do something better than me, I'll pass the part to them. I, I, I care more about how it sounds than who's playing what part. <laughs> well, Brian, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask one final question. Sure. And I want to know, when you first said about, this was a doctoral thesis, was it? That's correct. Okay. So when you first started out, writing this and doing all your research, first of all, what was the message that you wanted to convey to people who would read it? And second of all, when you were finally finished, did that message change at all? Well, when I started the project, uh, discussing topics with my um, with my primary instructor, uh, uh, Professor David Hickman at Arizona State, and, you know, we looked at the different interests that I have and that would that would translate into a doctoral uh, research project. And uh, I, I enjoy history and learning about uh, players and what made them you know, great and everything. And, and so we, we went around and, and looked at all the different players who had not had anything written on them. And, of course, Vacchiano was, was the biggest name, and he was at the top of the list, and he was still living at the time. So, you know, my goals right from the beginning were just to catalog his career and trace the importance of his career as a performer, as a teacher. Originally, I thought, okay, I'm just going to catalog this. You know, maybe it'll turn into a book, or maybe it'll be something I can use later on after the degree. I think it's always good to do things that have a life beyond the degree. I didn't know where it was really going to take me in the end, um, but I just wanted to get his story down on paper, and so that you know, players today who are in college who never had a chance to hear him live or anything or just know his name from the Alessi Vacchiano mute, you know, or whatever, um, that they can read about him and go, wow, this is uh, the background of how we got to where we are today as musicians, as trumpet players. And then once I started the research and I, I started digging into things and talking with all of his former students and colleagues, people that I never thought I'd you know, would even give me the time of day. Um, once I started talking with him, I realized this this guy was something special. You know, he wasn't just a trumpet player. You know, he was a musician. He cared about his students. I did not fully understand how much he cared about his students, not about their success, but about them as as human beings, which is a a wonderful testament to me and other teachers out there to not just teach students to be good musicians, but to care about them as people. And so my, my focus, you know, sort of shifted in, in that direction, focusing on the human element and uh, his character, while still giving, getting a wealth of, of information and knowledge about his, his influence uh, in the musical uh, musical world, and he was such, he was such a humble guy. I mean, there was a there was a diner at the end of a street. We went there a few times um, when I was interviewing him, and I think uh, it was Malcolm McNabb that that came to visit him one time. Malcolm and, and Vacchiano went down to this diner, and they were eating eating lunch or something. And and the waitress, you know, this was a place that Vacchiano probably went several times a week, so they all knew him there. So they're talking and everything, and the waitress, you know, just kind of inquired about what they were talking about, and and Malcolm said. You don't know who this is? You don't know that this is Bill Vacchiano, the former principal of the New York Philharmonic. He was teacher of Went Marsalis and Miles Davis and you know on down the list. And nobody at this diner even knew who he was. He never really tooted his own horn, as it were. And so that kind of thing really, really surprised me. And so I tried to bring out as much of that as, as possible in my writings.
one thing that the young players today could really learn is to become expert at the fine points of what make a musical phrase. I find that a lot of people are strong, have beautiful, fluid sounds and all that stuff, but when you ask them to interpret the post-horn solo from the Mahler Third Symphony, they don't really know quite what to do with it. The idea of a line that goes from point A to point B, I don't think that a lot of people understand that the way that we were taught to when we studied with Mr. Vacchiano. There's a lot of what I call limping in phrases, little sub-phrases within a larger phrase. And people start to, I don't think people know how to use vibrato as much as they did. When we first started with Mr. Vacchiano, he completely eliminated our, our, our vibrato, most of us. He just had us play stuff completely without, without vibrato. It was almost like a cleansing process. He would really strip you all the way down, bare bones. All that was left was, was the talent. And then he would, bit by bit, let you do this with intonation. He'd let you do this with phrasing. Maybe uh, towards the end of the first year or, or maybe into the second year, he'd, let, he'd see what, what you had developed with the vibrato. It's not that he'd said, okay, it has to sound like this. It's that he knew what it should not sound like. He knew that, that there were places where you used it and where you didn't. In other words, he helped you to remake your musical instinct so that you could not only sit down with another trumpeter and play something, you could sit down with a violinist, a flutist, a clarinetist, an oboist, and you wouldn't look like an idiot you would be able to play along like a musician. My thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. We've been listening to Brian Shook, and he is the author of the book Last Stop, Carnegie Hall, a tribute to William Vacchiano. And I also want to give a special thanks to my guests, Ronald Rahm, Manny Loriano, and Gerard Schwartz. If you enjoyed this, there are many more like it. Episodes of Trumpet Dynamics release every Monday. It's an experience you simply can't refuse.